business actually has a lot of like things that are kind of, that are actually scientific principles of like how to do things, how to assess, how to, you know, we don't really talk about ROI in medicine. Like if you do cardiac surgery, we don't talk about, you know, we're not measuring necessarily quality of life at one year for all our patients or five years and things like that. We have short-term, you know, ROIs, uh, we, you know, patient experience, this, that, the other. Uh, we don't look at those things. So business has a lot of principles of like how things are done that are actually, I was surprised to learn that it's actually a science. And uh, so, you know, that sort of was a learning that happened later on in life as I uh, got exposed to a few things. If you had to step away from a career that you'd spend decades building yourself towards, what would you do with yourself? My name's Jeff, and this is How It's Med, the podcast where we chat with people who are shaping the future of health tech and med tech. This time around, we rejoin part two of our conversation with Dr. Jahangir Apu, which we had with Abdo, one of the co-hosts on How It's Med. Last time, we chatted about how Dr. Apu built an illustrious program in cardiothoracic surgery in Alberta, had an amazing career in that field, but then had to quit the field because of physical limitations. This time around, we talk more about Dr. Apu's amazing work since in VC and healthcare. But wait, what is VC apart from, you know, a show called Silicon Valley? I don't know. Dr. Apu explains. Let's get started. Might be a bit personal then, but what makes you the right person for what you're doing in the VC space? Why you? Yeah, so, uh, so why me? Well, I had a background in medicine. I had a couple of decades of experience in investing and thinking about financial markets and partnering with hedge funds, et cetera. And I think that's a fair question. And we sort of thought about this, uh, in the last year or so. And I think, so the fund I run is called AIOT Health. So artificial intelligence and thinks healthcare and why us, why me? It's because I think we're a competitive advantage, our secret sauce, our rather proposition is this ability to be fluent in different languages. So ability to speak the language of medicine and understand it, ability to speak the language of business and of finance. So it's that combination, uh, that I've learned has been actually quite rare when it comes to investing in medical technologies, um, being able to truly understand what the impact is of an intervention in healthcare and being able to speak with physicians at different subspecialties and be able to speak that language. So I didn't even know that we spoke a different language until I stopped operating. It's just part of our culture. Uh, and, uh, no, it's just sort of normal talk, but, uh, you know, looking at it from the outside, I, I see like this ability to read between the lines. What about engineering? Is finance, medicine, where's engineering? Abdo was about to blow a gasket asking <laughs> What's that question. That? What's happening? Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, there's, there's room, room for everything, right? It's just so we have to figure out what our own strengths are. I do think that well, it's not what I think of read this since I think it's been shown is that innovation occurs when you can take 
expertise in different systems and, and merge them. So it doesn't matter what the systems are. Like I'm doing medicine and finance, but it could be engineering and law, right? It could be engineering and the humanities, or it could be engineering and finance. There's like so many different things that one could do, but it's like taking principles from one area and applying them at a different area. Uh, I don't think that what can have everything, right? But so you focus on what your strengths are as a person. And, uh, I think that's kind of, you know, one of the nice things of like, having spent a few cycles on this planet is like, we've developed expertise in certain effects, right? And, uh, so now you look at applying those expertise in, diff in different fields. So if your expertise is in engineering, then that's awesome. And you look where you can apply that. I, I want to take it back to something that you said before you, uh, had said that you had some expert, uh, expertise in the financial arena, um, with, uh, working with hedge funds and looking at the markets, um, how long before your pivot and founding and starting of AOT were you involved in those sectors? Uh, because it takes a certain degree of experience to be comfortable working with that language. Yeah, so probably a couple decades. So as, as a young man, we sort of learned how to figure out the stock market and one thing led to another to another, uh, but uh, nothing happens overnight. Yeah. And was that a particular interest or event that drove that personal learning? Because again, your main career was in cardiothoracic surgery and that and the financial markets don't seem to be explicitly yeah, tied in any yeah. way. Yeah. I mean, I was always interested in science and, uh, you know, not at an early stage in business and I was interested in like how money works, feed of money, what is, but could kind of was interested in sort of like almost like the science of money and like, what does the market do? Why does it fluctuate and those type of things. So I started reading about it and getting involved. And we talked earlier about like learning and applying. So, um, and then by getting involved, I learned more than apply more, et cetera. Um, and, uh, so one of my learnings along the way, like being in medicine is that generally as clinicians, we don't really, uh, use a lot of business principles. And what I, I learned is that, uh, at least in Canada and that business actually has a lot of like things that are kind of, that are actually scientific principles of like how to do things, how to assess, how to, you know, we don't really talk about ROI medicine. Like if you do cardiac surgery, we don't talk about, you know, we're not measuring necessarily quality of life at one year for all our patients or five years and things like that. We have short term. You know, ROIs, uh, we, you know, patient experience, this, that, the other, uh, we don't look at those things. So business has a lot of principles of like how things are done that are actually, I was surprised to learn that it's actually a science. And, uh, so, you know, that sort of was a learning that happened later on in life as I, uh, got exposed to a few things. Yeah, I think there's a whole lot more of that conversation to be had if we dove down that hole. 
but I do want to center the conversation more on your fascinating work with AIoT. Um, for those in our audience who aren't necessarily familiar with how a venture capital or VC firm works, can you break it down for me like I'm five? How are the partners in AIoT or venture capital's firms structured and how do they work together? I like that sort of explaining it to a five-year-old. So I would say that it's, uh, so with venture cap, we're investing in early stage companies. So people have an idea about changing the world for better. That's kind of what we're looking for. And what happens is if you, in order to save things from an idea to actually make it happen and improve the world. You need capital behind you. You need some funding. So what a venture capital fund does is it provides early stage companies, um, with access to capital so that they can grow and do good work. And, uh, the key for a venture capital fund is trying to identify which companies might be successful versus those that aren't going to be successful. I think, uh, Different venture capital funds have different ways of doing things. And there's a lot of ways of winning and being successful. For us, it gets back to like being able to speak that language of medicine and understanding the impact. So what we try to do is understand the impact of a technology and the impact on human life. And that starts us getting interested. So if we get that. Then we go through like multiple other layers of like, is this the right team? Do they have the right business model? Do they have pricing strategy? Do they have the right people around that? Do they have the right, uh, intellectual property protection, legal, et cetera. And then at the end of the day, if our partners make a lot of money, it's only because that inflow in that was impact, which means that a lot of people have been positively affected. So it's kind of a win-win model, right? Like, so because our intake is based on impact, if our partners make a ton of money, it's because that technology has had so much impact on people and our impact is in healthcare. So, so that if you can simplify it even a layer lower, what are your success metrics here? Yeah. So that, that's something that we're continuing to work with. Like how do we measure impact? Right. We measure the number people affected, how were they affected? Uh, what were their options otherwise without this technology? So I think, you know, assessing impact is a challenge and with ESG there's lots of different things. So we're always thinking about how we assess impact, uh, for, you know, with a venture capital fund, generally your success metrics are your returns, right? To invest X amount of dollars, how much do you get back at the end of the day? And again, I think, you know, for us, like I looked at all these different ways of assessing impact. And I think, like the thing I landed on was like, we're only investing in technologies because we think they have an impact on, on human life. So if we, if our partners make a ton of money on it, it's because that technology is affected solely human lives. <laughs> to stay on topic with VCs, then in some circles, VCs have a bad reputation. Why, why do you think that is? What could you want to sort of give me some indication? I, I, I suppose it, 
Uh, it's more, do you think the money gets in the way of impact at times? Sure. So it all depends on what the, the driver is. Uh, you know, I just, I feel like in any industry, there's always people who do better than others. Uh, there's always people who, uh, have, uh, you know, different alignment of interests. I don't think medicine is very different either. Uh, and there's different quality of people. So I think in the venture capital world, if you've got great people doing amazing stuff and you've got other people who, who might not be, and you know, I'm not here to judge who's doing what, uh, like, I think at the end of the day, it's like, why does somebody want to partner with somebody else, right? Like if you were to look at partnering with a VC, it's about like, what aligns with you? What are they doing? You know, they're telling you what they're doing. Why does that align with you? Right. And if it aligns with you, their message fits with yours, then, you know, hopefully that's a positive journey. But mm -hmm. if it's not a positive journey, at least you guys have the same thought process, uh, going in. And that's why you chose that. Talking about partners and bringing it back to the whole simplification theme, um, some terms that, uh, people might hear when they're starting to explore the language of venture capital is a general partner versus a limited partner. Can you explain, um, the, the two concepts and how they relate, especially in your context? Yeah, so sure. These are some of the details, uh, you know, the general partners, uh, the, uh, person or people who are running the fund, who are making the decisions of who to invest in, uh, and, uh, if they're also responsible for bringing in capital to invest, right? So the limited partners are the, uh, people who contribute capital, who are relying on the general partners, uh, to invest that capital or additional VC model. Uh, there's many there's different models, uh, within the venture capital space, but the idea being that it's a partnership where somebody is scouting and working full time to, uh, to identify opportunities and then someone else is investing in that. The general partners also invest their own money. I do believe in sort of doing, you know, going back, you asked earlier about excellence, like I just believe in doing things well. So like doing things off the side of the desk is not really that attractive, right? So up to me. So I believe that it makes a big difference if somebody's working full time in something. And that's what makes having a general partner attractive. It's someone who's working full time to rein in capital, to figure out how to expertly and appropriately, um, I guess, dole out capital to the best investments, as well as to leverage relationships to figure out, uh, which decisions are best, but as a segue into relationships, um, AIOT has grown quite a bit in the past year and in a recent newsletter to your limited partners, you highlighted relationships and communication as a core underpinning the speed, translatability and traction that your portfolio companies, um, have had in the past little while. So can you tell us a story or two that exemplifies the critical role that relationships 
either between the LPs or GPs or between yourself and others outside of your organization um, that exemplify the, the rule that, uh, I guess that, can you tell stories that highlight the rules that those relationships play in your company's successes is, I guess, the summary of it all. Yeah, so interesting question. Good question. Um, so different things. So uh, probably gets back to like this thing that I always talk around, like alignment with incentives. So first of all, one of the things that venture capital we talked earlier is that it's investing in private companies as opposed to public companies, so investing in Apple and IBM and things like that. So in the public markets, things are fully disclosed. Everyone has access to all the stocks that are listed to the TSX or S&P. Uh, but so one thing in the venture capital is that it's about access to information, right? So it's all about relationships that allow you to have access to information and, and to deals. So venture capital is about being able to see something that someone else hasn't had the chance to see yet. It's so though that's one relationship that's important. Being, you know, and then it, I think it has to get down to like win-win models, uh, or relationships between our founders and, and us. If we can help them, they are in turn teaching us about things that they're doing. They have other good people that they know that they introduce us to. Um, and then I also like, if we think about like what we're doing in healthcare, like as a cardiac surgeon, I know a lot about cardiovascular physiology, et cetera, a lot of the problems. And I can speak the language of medicine, but it's quite different when there's say a company that's doing something in the neurology space and the ability to speak to one of our partners who's perhaps a neurologist or a neurointerventionalist and ask them about their pain points when they see a patient with this disorder, is this a big deal or not? And what are they thinking about, right? Is like those kind of relationships. So with our fund, we have uh, about 60% of our limited partners are physicians. They represent 12 to 15 different subspecialties in medicine from anesthesia, to psychiatry, to surgery. Uh, so that's also a very valuable relationship that we have where they're clearly interested in new technology that's coming down the line with their field, investors, uh, and, and partners. So often I think when, uh, physicians get asked a question, it's the wrong questions and, uh, that they lose a lack, they have a lack of, uh, alignment of interest like, uh, You'll see a, a company come and say, like, the cardiac surgery is, is this a good valve? Do you like this valve? Yes, I like the valve. Would you use the valve? Yes, I'd use the valve. Uh, and, you know, but they haven't asked me if I would pay extra for this valve, if I'm going to actually go fight with the, you know, powers that be to replace the valve we have and get this other valve. How much extra would I pay for this file? What would be the benefit to the patient? I mean, I like it. Yes, it's nice, you know, but like how much of a difference is it going to make to my patients? Right. Um, that's not what they passed. And so then go back and sort of report saying 95% of heart surgeons say they would use this file. You're just asking the wrong questions. Yes. It's like, yeah.
So I was a bit caught, caught off guard with that story. What do you think is the right question to be asking? Something that's not so, so I, I, uh, leading. So the question, so the, it's like, I think when we ask questions, we have to understand what's in it for the other person, right? Like you, if you're asking a friend, they want to help you. That, that makes sense. If you're asking someone who's part of your company and you think you're growing your business or a group of doctors working together, we're thinking about, you know, how we run a more efficient business, et cetera, how, how we tackle some of our problems. Like everyone is aligned as to what, you know, the problem you're trying to solve. So it's about trying to figure out, um, you know, being open, having disclosure, trying to say, this is what we're trying to learn. This is why. Would you be willing to help? How can we get you engaged? Would you like to try this? Would it be interesting to try this? Like different people. Um, so when it gets to like physicians and technology, um, you know, physicians are willing to work with companies for a variety of different reasons. But if, if the company doesn't understand what those reasons are, then it's unlikely that they're going to get a good answer, right? If you just go to a KOL and it's a key KOL, it's a key, key opinion leaders, you ask a generic question, you're going to get a generic answer. I think this is a issue for a lot of technology companies working with clinicians is trying to understand, um, you know, why a clinician might want to work with the company. I, I can go through some of those reasons if you want me to. Please do. That's going to be my next question. Yeah. So that's often around like, so what, what, you know, clinicians are busy and then, but then technology companies have a cool widget they've discovered that can improve healthcare, but then they need it to be tested and tried out in a, in a formal setting. That's great for the company. What's in it for the clinician? So sometimes clinicians want like a consultancy fee. Sometimes they would like to be the chief medical officer of a company and get like equity ownership. Sometimes often. Physicians don't want a financial reimbursement. They want the ability to be able to publish in high impact journals without a conflict of interest. So they don't want the dollar, but they want to do impactful research, uh, that's in their area of interest, right? Other times, uh, physicians, uh, could, you know, we all, as physicians, we all have different roles within our divisions, right? Some people in charge of education, some people in charge of basic science research, clinical research, quality improvement. So, you know, that somebody may be in charge of technology and the chief may want that clinician to work with different technology companies, because when we work with technology, you get, you know, it interests the residents and fellows and you get a higher quality trainee. So it may be that that person is in. You know, that's their job to work with 10 different technology companies. Uh, and so they'll be interested in working with you for that reason. Or you could be aware, a clinician could be at a non-academic site, uh, especially in the States. And when they might be want to work with technology companies, because when they use technology, it gets in the press. When it gets in the press, patients get referred to them or come to them. Uh, so that might be their incentive. Or a clinician might be on a based on a research track and a new clinician generally has, you know, three to five years to get a CIHR or NIH type of grant that sets up their career. And they have to get that in the first few years. And, uh, in order to get a large grant of several millions of dollars, you might need pilot data. 
So if they partner with a technology company that's working in their space, it allows them to get some early data and then allows them to then use that data to apply for their grant and set up their career. So if you don't understand why a clinician may want to work with you, it's unlikely that it will be a very productive relationship in the short term and likely it won't be sustainable in the long term. So this is this concept of like aligning incentives. I, my, you, you literally took the next question from, from my list of questions. You keep um, it was going to <laughs> stop being in our brains. Um, I just wanted to ask you, like, what is, in your opinion, the best way to align incentives? Is it to be straightforward in your opinion and to assess and have a direct conversation about what the counterparty wants, or is it just more investigative work, asking around building connections overall? Yeah, I, I think in terms of a light of incentives, what I've learned is so often there are things that parties are thinking about, but we don't want to discuss. And it's there, it's under the table as opposed to openly talking about it, right? Like what's, what's in it for the company? What's in it for the clinician? Uh, you know, what is the, you know, what is the clinician interested in? Maybe they're interested in like, they give a lot of talks, uh, across the world on a particular topic and they like to have slides and talk about the newest technologies of this area as the area is evolving. And that's why they want to be interested. Right. Uh, but I think it generally that there's a misalignment of interest happen because of the onset. So if we can identify and often like unsaid is often around my, in many different aspects of life. So if we can actually just openly say, Hey, I'm asking you this question because it's helpful for me to know. And you know, just, I want to ask you this, right? Uh, people get suspicious about the reasons otherwise, if it's not discussed. So I, I kind of favor disclosure, Jeffrey, and, uh, talking about things openly at a time. That makes sense. And just for one last question. In your newsletter, you use a really great metaphor, only swing when you see a fastball in the middle of the strike zone. Um, so what's the vision going forward for AIoT health and is, uh, patience, the strategy given, uh, strategy driven primarily by the increasing cost of capital, or is it a principle that you've always held dear? Yeah. So we want to sort of make asymmetrical beds, right? Where, uh, things are lined up, uh, that makes sense to us. Uh, the, uh, there's another model in venture capital, which is making a lot of bets and that one of them will pay off in a big way. Uh, we're more around impact and trying to go deeper into things. So we want to be patient and we want to, you know, when you get the right founder, uh, that, that we happy backing and partnering with long term, get the right idea and the right business model and, uh, that everything sort of fits in nicely to deliver impact, that's when, uh, it should have take the bat off our shoulders. So yeah, we're willing to be patient. Yeah. Okay. Well, you can find out more about AIoT health at AIOTHealth.ca. Is that correct? Yeah. And you can find out more about how it's met at howitsmed.com. Uh, till next time. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of how it's met. If you liked what you heard, 
the best way to support us is to go to your podcast platform, be it Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever you like, and to give us a rating and a recommendation or a comment so that others can best find us. If you can't do that, then we'd really appreciate it if you could share your favorite episode with those that you care about and who you think would find our work interesting. Till next time.